Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And Mark, this might be painful to you. I include the annuals in that count. Ooh, like a like a stake through the heart, Dan. I'm mischievous Marchinacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog, author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and I, too, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man. But unlike you, daniel son, I do not count the annuals. And that's fair because our motto is always right, Mark, that your collection is your own and so be it, right? This is this the new piece we've come to? That is that is from the from the holiday episode itself. It's it's what you want it to be, my my friend. <laughs> you know what? I will make a point on this too. That holiday episode is our least downloaded episode in the past few years. And if you're skipping it because it has the word Christmas on it and you felt like it Christmas season's over, go back because that episode, I think, is really fun. It's short, and I think it had a big twist in it for the future of our show. So, you know, you don't want to miss out on the narrative chronology of, of this show. That's like missing a .hu episode. I, I, absolutely, Dan. I'm, I'm, glad you're, I'm glad you're selling our Christmas episode in the end of February. <laughs> yes, I know, I know. Well, regardless, thank you everyone for joining us for this special review roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Today, we are going to be rounding up a series of reviews of Amazing Spider-Man that originally premiered for our Patreon supporters back when these issues were first published. That's right. We are going to be reviewing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, issues number 32 through 34, the start of the 2099 storyline. I bet you're really eager to revisit that, Mark. I, I, if I could jump into the future and see how excited I am, I, could, I would, Dan, because let me tell you. <laughs> All right. Well, also, be sure to remember that this episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose very patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all the research. So if you enjoy this show in any regard and want to help us to continue while getting amazing bonus content like these very reviews when they were originally released to our Patreon subscribers, as well as additional episodes from people like the Untold Talks of Spider-Man that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. To that point, we want to thank all of our new Patreon members. Uh, so a special thanks to Catherine F. Kyle Whitehouse. A. Uh, H- H- Hazel and 
he, he a apologizes on his pronunciation. So there you go. I, I'm sure I really destroyed it. <laughs> yeah, no, you definitely did, Mark. Uh, we also have a uh, Brad Gullickson from the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast, which is a great show you should check out. And uh, they've been long supporters of ours, so go check out the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. We also got Rondell Dobard, Comic Boy 2018. Vincent Aaron Stoffer. That's got that's that's got a Hollywood name there. <laughs> that's like one step away from a Spider-Man villain's like origin name. Okay, that or that. <laughs> or, or or that. <laughs> we also got Anthony Langford. Uh John D'Antoni. Jonathan Dickens. And Timothy May. Oh, I, I, that last one was very easy to say, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> uh, there you go, Mark. I, I should line these up for you in that way. So, uh, yeah, thanks, everybody, for joining. That was a big month for us here in terms of Patreon. And uh, just thanks again to everybody for jumping on. I, I hope you have a great time with our whole collection there. But enough of that stuff, Mark. Let's get to the action and dive into our review of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 32. What's Enjoy our review of Amazing Spider-Man 32. Today, we're going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 32, also known as Legacy 833. Is Spider-Man going to be lifting rubble off of his head for no reason other than it's a 33rd issue? We're going to find out. It's also a 32nd issue, so like maybe he's going to just be like, what is it, Man on a Rampage or something like that was the, the cover? <laughs> that was always a favorite cover of mine, Dan, uh, 32. And 33, obviously, but, uh, but uh, both of them. They're they're kind of important issues. Anyway, but maybe, maybe this one isn't quite as historically significant unless you're into really awesome art, which I think is kind of how... I know we don't usually start with the art when it comes to these books, probably because I don't talk about it as much as you do. But I feel like this is a case where it's warranted. It's like, welcome Patrick Gleason to Amazing Spider-Man. Like this, this book is beautiful, Dan, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I was really excited to see what he would be doing on this book when it was announced. I was a big fan of his run on Superman, you know, back when the rebirth happened, he was drawing Superman for like, 20 or so issues and they were I, I mean it, it made me buy Superman comics which I don't normally do other than like kind of like those big storylines like you know the the birthright and all that stuff but like here I was buying weekly Superman comics because Patrick Gleason was drawing them and he was drawing the heck out of them and boy guess what he can draw the heck out of Spider-Man, too. I mean, before we jumped on the air, Dan, we were talking a little bit about this. And, you know, the first thing I said was like, you know, this feels like definitely the best the the book has looked since Stuart Eminem was working with Dan Slott. But like it's it's still even a little more different than that, because like this feels like truly iconic superhero you know, visual storytelling here. And then you came up with the comparison of of John Byrne. And I think like that to me is probably spot on because, and, and like when I think of like 
true iconic visuals. Like I think of someone like Byrne doing Spider-Man, but also the X-Men, obviously in the Fantastic Four and Superman. And like this feels like akin to that. Like I'm looking at this and this just looks like beautiful superhero stuff. Like, you know, like there's action poses, but it's not like overly crazy and kinetic a la the McFarlane and the 90 guys like this this feels both classic but also very modern I love it I like like I I want more of this in my Spider-Man comics Gleason stuff is always like read to me as very like it's like very solid like it can be very expressive but it's always kind of like grounded in kind of like a like a weightiness to it like I read his Superman stuff and like you'd have like these big bold splashy things of like Superman's S and his chest larger than life bursting through things but it's like how I imagine like larger than life heroes looking it's like big bold splashy cartoon even like the old Superman like uh, cartoons the the nineteen like what nineteen fifties cartoons of Superman like there's something kind of like just pure iconography like let me see the colors let me see the logos popping out you know like lean into the kind of like uh, sillier stuff uh, you know but like it also has that weight behind it and for me like the I, I was worried that he would you know not be able to handle Spider Man because he's less of a kind of like elevated superhero figure you know he's not like superman that's just like big bold brawny you know golden age stuff spider-man is like rooted in the silver age but there's one image in this in this book that sold it for me a hundred percent and it's spider-man kind of like making jokes at the foreigner while kind of has this kind of jokey gait in his step and then like the next panel is him like big and bold and like ready to punch the foreigner and i was like all right this guy gets it like welcome to spider-man comics you've got it figured out yeah i was about to say the this this the spider-man foreigner sequence is definitely just like very dynamic. I mean, like Spider-Man is doing very classic Ditko-esque Spider-Man stuff and poses in terms of how he's moving his body. Um, but yet, like, again, it still feels kind of grounded in in a certain kind of realism, if you will. I, I know that sounds weird because it's superhero comics about someone bitten by a radioactive spider doing things that people can't do. But like, again, like to me, that's what makes it just a little bit different and more refined than what you would get with. And let me start by saying, I've loved what Ryan Otley has done on this book, but like to me, that's Ryan Otley is more in the vein of like the, the McFarlane's and Larson's in terms of like, you know, we're kind of pushing the imagination a little bit in terms of what these characters would actually look like if you were, in person watching them do stuff. You know what I mean? Like, like, whereas this feels like while it's clearly a comic book, like I feel like I could be sitting there watching these characters move like that in real life. Does that make sense? This one transported me to another world. Like, you know, everything is like very exaggerated in its design. I mean, I think about the kind of like operating table that Miguel O'Hara is slapped down to on here. And like the devices that are coming at him are all like exaggerated. And that's, I think why I went to burn like, Burn is really good about those kind of like rounded, big, bubbly, you know, kind of over overdone designs. And and uh, so this has felt very 90s to me, even if the subject matter was like a lot of 80s comic stuff. I mean, you've got like this, uh, I think, newly iconic appearance of Silver Sable showing up in, in this issue. I mean, that's the thing. It's just like every page has like a new iconic image on it, even if it's borrowing from like previous stuff i mean you've got like miguel blasting through the glass in an iconic 
you know, Spider-Man 2099 pose, you know, not to mention that like Gleason has taken it back to the full black costume with blue highlights, like welcome back black and red costume. Like that Spidey 2099 suit, it never looked this good in modern comics. Absolutely. Or like I'm also thinking now of the splash page of uh, Miguel kind of doing the half half Miguel, half Lila face for and and with all the 2099 uh, visuals underneath it. I mean, like the level of detail, like you said, it's 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 overdone in a but with a level of detail that feels grounded in something weird. You know what I mean? I, I I'm I'm trying to think of the right words for it. Like like I said, it's 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 both kind of fan it's both very highly fantastical and elevated at the same token it makes me feel like i'm actually seeing something moving in front of me i i was blown away by it i don't usually get this excited over art you know as we discussed some of the finer points of the story i i wasn't that impressed with the story itself but i love the art (laughs) i think editorially you know like here i go mark i'm about to heap a compliment on the editorial team of a spider-man comic I actually felt like this was a great issue to debut Gleason on because I think Otley's stuff is much more classically oriented. I mean, his, his style of like framing even is like boxy, you know, layouts. And we had those flashbacks going on. And I felt like that was a, like a really great way to kind of lean into the like structural integrity of Otley's artwork. Whereas like this with the 2099 and the kind of fracturing of time and dimensions was a great place for Gleason to kind of get wild and showcase what he does best, which is kind of break rules and, and lean into kind of like nineties exaggerated form. I felt like having these two kind of artists back to back doing those kinds of things was really exciting. Although I have to admit, like I'm kind of short selling Otley because we just got a tease for like a big monster book he's doing in like issue 37 or something. And I'm like, Oh cool. There's Otley's monsters. So like, you know, each of them has their own strength. I felt like these two short stories back to back was a great way to highlight what this new. I I imagine these two guys are now the rotating creative team. Like what this creative team is going to be really good at doing. I mean, and for the record, yeah, I would love to see Otley do more of like you know the the venoms and the and the the stegrons of the world. But like this, this like you know, I I agree with you. I feel like this was a good subject matter because. You know, it's it's kind of both very progressive and and kind of imaginative in terms of, like you said, time and the elements of time. And and it's very highly dynamic with two Spider-Men kind of going at it here. But the same token, the story is dealing a lot with the more um, street level world of like the foreigner and Silver Sable and Teresa Parker and Chameleon. And I and I, I think that, you know, lends to everybody's strengths for the most part. But let's talk a little bit about the story, too. Before we get into what's in this story, can we talk about what's not in this story? And for me, it, it's important to note, like, I think it's a bit of a kind of a I don't know what the, what the word I'm looking for is, but like the fact that there's no resolution on absolute carnage, which I know is still kind of playing out right now. Like they don't want to like definitively say what happened at the end of that story, but that like, there's no kind of follow up on, on how Spider-Man feels after that. Like reading these back to back, it's kind of a bit of a like, well, wait a minute. Like, did we defeat carnage now? Like what's going on? And and I think that probably gets into our next point, Mark, which I'm going to let you say, because I know that you and I are lockstep on this. We obviously didn't get any resolution there, which is frustrating. And it's like, we're we're kind of just jumping into this new event 
sorta, which is this this twenty ninety nine tie in, and 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 like I like twenty ninety nine Dan. I, you know, I felt like they kind of overdid it after it was brought back initially five or six years ago. You know, then we kind of had a cooling off period. I don't know if I was necessarily begging for more, but okay, fine. You want to bring it back in some way. But this just feels very poorly inserted into the narrative here. And like, you know, then I'm like looking, I get to the end of this issue and I see it's a checklist and it's all these tie-in issues. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Like, you know, I, you know, we're, we're literally jumping from event to event here without much of a segue within this book itself like like you know and and that to me is like it's just very poor sequential storytelling here i mean like we we should feel like we're flowing from one thing to the next especially if you're going to go from one big event to the next big event right i've been saying this on twitter for a little while now too it's like this 2099 event i don't even know what it is you know like I've read all the ads and all of the comics that I've been picking up for, for it. Like I think the house of X and powers of 10 books have been advertising the heck out of this thing. But like, I don't know what it is. Like, what is the threat? Like what issues do I need to buy to follow it? Do I just need to read amazing Spider-Man and the alpha and Omega issues? Can you have only alpha and Omega issues with no issues in between? Like, I, I don't know what this event is. And on the back of like absolute carnage yeah, it just feels like like it's a reach. Like we didn't need this right away. The market is already oversaturated with Spider-Man books and Spider-Man family books. Like let's just talk even like this week, Spider-Man Full Circle. I had fun reading that book. It was $10. Like how what kind of wallets do they think we have for these Spider-Man titles? Like I'm not itching to pick up a whole event worth of 2099 stuff. And it makes me dubious to even pick up the alpha book because it's like, I don't know what I'm going to need to read or if we're just going to move on from this after two issues, like we did absolute carnage and it will have no effect on the narrative of the story moving forward. I mean, what's kind of silly about this whole thing is like, you know, actually thinking about how we're kind of jumping from event to event here without really tying the, the the threads in Spider-Man itself together, it kind of is reminding me of what I felt plagued Spider-Man 2099 when it had returned a few years ago, which was like, you know, I, you know, I felt like we had Peter David and Will Sliney were, were kind of trying to get some momentum and a narrative going. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, no, now it's, it's, we're, we're going to tie 2099 into this Marvel event and that Marvel event and that Marvel event. And then like, you know, we had like four events, interruptions in a row on the book and then all of a sudden you know like spider 2099 civil war 2 uh spider 2999 monsters inc or whatever that storyline was at one point and then all of a sudden we get to the you know it's like oh well now we're going to resolve what we started telling like 11 issues ago a storyline that you clearly don't care or have forgotten about by this point so like yeah like what what do we like what's going on with like this is amazing spider-man this is like one of your flagship books marvel like are like like how do you go from one thing to the next without any transition and without like kind of prepping readers like this is what's this is what's going on here because that's the other thing you mentioned here dan like this issue doesn't give us any context to so what's the drama here like something's going on with miguel o'hara sure but like like can you at least set us up (laughs) like like, can we can we get a a little more information than this (laughs) yeah the only thing we get is this kind of like image of like the future doom kind of like with the future falling apart around him. And it's like, that's just not enough for me. You know, like if, if it's the first time we'd seen Miguel O'Hara in like a decade, fine. 
you know, but we got the, like, the future is doomed, like, a half dozen times over the past five years, you know? So, like, you're going to have to give me more than that, especially considering, like, you know, look, if Patrick Gleason was drawing the 2099 story that Nick Spencer is writing, you know, that we're going to get, I, I guess, like, I would 100% go pick it up in a heartbeat because getting more of him drawing 2099 would be a thrill. But he's just doing the covers for for the spinoffs in that series. So, like, the one hook that they've set up really well in this issue for the series is that Patrick Gleason can draw the heck out of Spider-Man 2099. But Nick Spencer's the guy writing it. Like, Nick Spencer needs to do the work to get me to pick up Nick Spencer's other books. And right now, like, none of the narrative hooks that he set me up for are going to get me to pick up that Omega issue when it comes out, what, like, next week? Uh, because then we have Amazing Spider-Man 34, which is going to follow up on that, I believe. And again, I don't even know. There's no narrative thread here. Like, it's funny because you and I, like, uh, we lament the year-long tease. But this is the opposite, too, which is, like, I'm not going to invest in buying a dozen comics over the threat of the universe, like the future being doomed, you know, like that's an X-Men. It's every other X-Men comic. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Is Cable going to show up or uh... <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's kind of strike one and it's a big strike one against this issue. But then like, you know, there's some other stuff going on. Some of it, some of it is fun Spider-Man stuff, but then like, I feel like we're, we have a story here of, of apples and oranges. You know what I mean? Like we, we have this like B story, if you will, of Peter kind of getting pulled out of his study group to deal with Teresa Parker stuff. Yawn. I'm sorry. I just don't like this introduction of I don't like this element of the myth of the mythos right now you know like I, I don't get why we have Teresa Parker and why I feel like it's Teresa's become like the new you know duos machina in terms of like oh you know we need to get Peter out of a situation where frankly I was more interested in reading about Peter because I thought it was well written that scene with him in the study group was well written so let's now introduce the long lost sister to get him to do random shield stuff and like to me like that it's just the worst it grinds things to a halt in the worst way possible you and I did a whole episode with Mark Wade about how much we don't really like dig the super spy family stuff but like combine that trope with the like secret long lost sister and you've got this kind of like merger of double tropes off of a like loner character that's defined by like his inability to share his secret with other people, you know, and you've got, it's just not good, you know, like, uh, and it's funny cause I, I posted about this on, on Twitter and someone was like, well, you know, blame Mark Wade and, uh, and you know, Chip Zdarsky at least tried to fix it. And it's like, no, Chip Zdarsky ruined this. Like, I was cool with Teresa in family business, like, because they left it open-ended. It's the same with like the inheritors thing. And I'm sure I said this on like an episode ago, which is like the inheritors thing was cool when it was just Moreland and it was left open-ended about Spider-Man's, you know, kind of totemic powers. But when you put a definitive answer to it and tell me it's a part of a giant spider verse of these characters that are hunting spiders for their totemic stuff, 
I'm just intensely less interested in that. As they say on the HBO show, The Leftovers, let the mystery be, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, not everything needs a, needs an answer. And and to me, like, and like I said, it's not even so much, I mean, yes, it's, what everything you said is 100% correct, but I do feel like the way Teresa's being used now is even, is even more disruptive because, like, it's like, I feel like we're we're in the middle of a Spider-Man book and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, now it's like a Spider-Man and Family Shield book. And I, I like like why why are we disrupting the flow of our book this way? And 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 let's talk about the scene that got disrupted, this community, this community study, uh, college study group page, because like I feel like we were like we were in Peter's head. We were having some fun banter with other students like this, like this felt pretty like this felt very Spider-Man-ish to me. Like I felt like I was reading like an old Roger Stern story here. Well, I'm going to praise it for that, but also kind of like ding it for that at the same time. Like I love the banter here. I loved meeting new characters. I don't think they're particularly memorable new characters. Like they don't strike me in the same way as like when we first met the characters in horizon labs, like where I, those characters were immediately memorable like, and I don't know if these are characters we're going to revisit, although I imagine so. Like, they set up the whole kind of like community study group thing. And I'll be keen on revisiting them because they were very well written. Being inside of Peter's head, it's like this book has its groove back again. Like, I'm enjoying being in the mindset of Peter Parker. And, and that's where a Spider-Man book should live, is in the mind of Peter as he tries to weigh this stuff out. And it's even, you know, digging into the murkiness and muckiness of Parker Industries. But I was, like, willing to go with it because, like, it's at least acknowledging that history in an interesting way, even if, like, I don't find it completely believable that a guy could fall so far, <laughs> you know, like a guy with a tech empire like that which we had talked about during that era of the book, that it would be hard to establish normal again. You know, this goes a long way to doing that. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, something about it grates on me because like Peter, st- as a studying college student in like a study group kind of thing, I just feel like we've been there before for a decade. You know, like, are we going to get another group of ESU friends that will forget, you know, and never mention ever again? You know, hey. Hey, who has forgotten Deb Whitman here? Okay, come on. She's the most <laughs> memorable of the bunch. There's like like, know, like Sissy and like there's uh, so many other people that will, will never get mentioned ever again from the spectacular Spider-Man run. And then there's the whole like sliding timeline thing. Like there's there's one ding against Gleason's artwork. I think it says Peter looks way too young. And it's something that we dinged Eminem for as well, is that they both kind of drew a very young Peter. And I don't want to suggest it's because I'm older than Peter now that, like, I feel this way. But it is weird to see a guy who's accomplished all the things that he's done, like, studying with a bunch of, like, undergrads or, or however old these people are. Like, Peter should be the weird older guy at the college that, you, like, you know, that everybody was like, oh, you're in your late 20s? You know, like, I was that guy. You know, like uh, in my real life, you know, and I felt odd and out of place. I feel like they did that to a degree here, Dan. I, I guess I mean, like, I, I, I get what you're saying. And like, I do get I do agree to you to a point about like kind of like, are we just going to like do this kind of story again? And, and you know, do we need this kind of story again? Probably not. But like, I do feel like he was kind of, you know, not not just because of Parker Industries, but it, it kind of was like, you know, 
well, you know, what, why, why is he here? Oh, because, you know, the, the, you know, the, you know, Connor feels bad that the lizard didn't eat him or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like what, like, I, I got the sense that these kids were like, seriously, what are you doing here, dude? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you don't belong here. I like, but like, and I kind of liked that dynamic, uh, that just that kind of uncomfortableness, because I feel like that plays off of the awkwardness that is Peter Parker really well. All right. That's fair. That's fair. I guess maybe I'm overreaching, but I, I guess the, the big thing is really just I'm like, I was hoping for something a little fresher from Spencer than like we're putting him back in ESU, especially after all of that like weight that we took to get back here and him hemming and hawing about whether or not he would do it. It's like. It just feels like the lazy, like, and I'm not saying lazy. It's a natural place to put Peter, but like, I don't know. I was hoping for something a little more exciting. And and already I'm like seeing the familiar beats play out, which is like Peter always has to leave his college friends behind. And it's like, yeah, I know. Just let him get his degree and let's see what he does next. You know? You know, obviously, upon leaving this scene and going with Teresa, we, you know, well, this, that that sidebar story didn't really do much for me. We did get some pretty cool visual reveals, I would say. I mean, first was the the army of um, jack-o'-lantern stooges, which, I mean, both looked good and was kind of, I don't know, I thought it was kind of cool. Like, I mean, like, jack-o'-lantern as a villain doesn't do much for me, but I kind of liked, and they even, like, poked fun of it. Like, oh, wow, there's, like, an army of them now, you know? I'm a sucker for the jack-o'-lantern design. I just think it's a cool villain. And especially after the kind of like uh, Rick Remender Venom run, like jack-o'-lantern is slightly elevated. I know this isn't actually jack-o'-lantern, but like the way that like modern coloring can render the fire coming out of the jack-o'-lantern head, I think really like has elevated that character's design in a way that makes him like, look, if you're going to have a bunch of stooges who like, are in just like, you know, cloth fatigues, or they're going to be a bunch of jack-o'-lanterns, sign me up for the jack-o'-lanterns. That's way cooler. (laughs) And then I thought the foreigner came across kind of elevated here in a way. I mean, obviously, I don't don't even remember the last time we saw him in a story, or at least in the main book, for sure. I I like that he wasn't treated as like a total pushover here. You know what I mean? Like like he, he felt like he could give Spidey a run for his money in a fist fight. But then we get this awesome-looking Silver Sable reveal. And granted, I've been on the record. I'm not a huge Silver Sable person. Sorry, Ron and Tom. But this was a cool reveal, I thought. Yeah, I mean, what a splash page. I I mean, like, everything about it was, like, beautifully rendered. I mean, even just the smoke that's coming off of Spider-Man's back. I mean, is it going to make me tune in for another big Silver Sable who's in the book again? Like, Again, this is one of those things where it's like if I hadn't run the read the Dan Slot run, I'd probably be super thrilled about this. But like we just got a lot of Silver Sable, I feel like. So it doesn't feel like that big of a shocker, but like great, you know, give me a good Silver Sable story. The foreigner, I mean, you're right. I haven't seen that guy since the his last major presence on this book, he wasn't involved in, right? He just killed the hobgob or he killed Ned Leeds off panel. The foreigner is a bit exciting. One of the things I did find interesting about the scene is that like Teresa seems so hell bent on revenge to the point that Spider-Man's making jokes and she's not responding to them, which seemed like a real beat. Like Nick Spencer was like pointing that out for a reason. Do we think that there's like something coming down the pike for Teresa? Like I'm not saying necessarily that her like identity as Peter's sister will be reversed, but like it does feel like, this character needs to be taken in a certain direction, even though we literally got her out of jail with like 
no mention of it. What direction can that be? I mean, like, are they going to, you know, is, is her revenge going to lead to her getting killed off? But then, like, why go through all these paces? You know, the the, the thing that, that Amazing Spider-Man has been building towards for the better part of the last year and change is something having to do with Peter and MJ and, and like, the, the, the old guard of characters, like the Harry Osborns, the, the, the Gwens, the Norman Osborns. I mean, that seems to be where this is building right now. So, like, if you are about to insert this storyline with this newer character and, you know, and we're supposed to care about how she's changing and what the stakes are for that, I don't know. I feel kind of disconnected from it because, like, that's not the story that I'm invested in when it comes to the world of Spider-Man right now. So like, I feel like whatever they end up doing with it is going to end up being kind of lost in the, in the, in the wilderness of the bigger story right now. And that was what so was so great about the absolute carnage story was that like, we thought we would be losing the focus, but that story only helped us focus more on what Spencer has been doing. And, you know, I don't think the ESU stuff is too far afield from like, the world that we need to be in right now, especially considering that MJ is in Hollywood. So it allows Peter to kind of be on his own and begin to explore his status quo as like a character without MJ. I don't think we need 2099 right now. It's like, it, I, I'm very mixed on like this issue because it's like, boy, I love the 2099 stuff under the pen of Patrick Gleason. Like the breakout sequence that like ends this issue is so visually stunning like I could read that, but then I don't need to read it in Amazing Spider-Man. Like I feel like just launch a new number one, 2099, throw Patrick Gleason on that. I mean, I, look, I prefer having him on this book because he's so amazing. But like, yeah, you're right. It totally disrupts the flow. And I'm suddenly thinking about all these other characters when I, I want to be getting back to the other thing. This almost feels like a kind of a evergreen type story that they've been cooking up for a while. And now it's now all the other pieces are finally ready to go and they're telling it now. And it just kind of feels like it's being inserted in the middle of nowhere. So I don't know, but I guess this is the, the appeal of the double shipping. It you know, it's like we can move on pretty quickly from this and not be too like, you know, tossed off the track. Any other big thoughts on this one, Dan? I mean, there's the big kind of cliffhanger at the end, which is like Miguel's powers have stopped working. I have no speculation about this or really like desire to speculate about it. Like I'm going to find out, What's going on, I imagine, in the next issue. Are you going to be picking up this 2099 Alpha book? I'll probably pick that one up. But I mean, I, you know, I mean, looking at the checklist, I mean, not that I need to announce all of my buying habits right now. But like, you know, like I'll pick up the Alpha and the Omega. But like, you know, maybe outside of the Spider-Man 2099 um, tie-in, I don't foresee myself getting all of these tie-ins. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just can't right now. Like, I mean, how many books does Marvel really expect me to buy as we kind of said at the beginning here? Well, that's, that's why I'm asking because like, I feel like the success of this issue really is like, you know, your wallet is a measure of how successful this issue is. Like, did it do a good job of having you go? I got to go find out what's going on with 2099. And personally me, like I think if I wasn't doing this show and, and didn't feel an obligation to talk about it, I probably would just go, oh, I'll read it on Marvel unlimited. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm tempted to do that, but I don't know. You're right. I mean, I'll probably get the Alpha and the Omega. I mean, I <laughs> We're suckers. Yeah. yeah. What, yeah suckers I, born every day. And we've been around the, for a I while. I draw the line at Conan 2099, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I know, right? I mean. <laughs> yeah. 
So let's do some grades, Mark. Let me give you this. You're looking at overall grade, but if in terms of art, what's your art grade on this book? The art's an A for me. I mean, this is this book is beautiful. So, so what's your overall grade? I will say the art brings it up so much that I'll give the book a B minus. But like the story for me is like C C minus territory. I'm going to repeat exactly your grade. A for the art, B minus overall. I'm not loving the story. I mean, you know, I saw a lot of feedback on because I, I was a little late to reading this. I didn't get to the comic store on release day. So like I saw a lot of people kind of chattering about how much fun this issue was. So I was like, oh, I'm looking forward to this. And I read it last night. Uh, we're recording this on a Saturday. And I am just I was just kind of like, I mean, the book looks great. It looks so good. But like the story, this doesn't this doesn't really do it for me. I'm glad we agree. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like and again, like not a terrible story. Like, I mean, there's not much of a story, but like the art's great. And we got inside Peter's head for a little bit. So like there are worse things that have happened in this book. It's just like. It's, it, it feels very like two worlds, one book. All right. Well, cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening. I'm looking forward to talking about the next one and continuing down our amazing Spider-Man train here. That's right. Miguel O'Hara is back in action and we are eager to talk about him some more. Woo! So Dan, let's not wait. It's time for our review of Amazing Spider-Man volume five, number 33. Enjoy our review of Amazing Spider-Man 33. So today we're talking about Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, Number 33, Slash 834. Do you think we're going to get an allusion to Spider-Man lifting metal over his head in this? I mean, it's a 33rd issue. You had me panic for a second. I'm like, wait, did we? And I'm like, I don't think so. Unless you count like a robot or android head getting blown apart. Like that's kind of metallic-y. I don't know. Well, speaking of uh, iconic visuals in this, I I think there's no way to start talking about this issue without like following up our praise on the previous issue for the work of Patrick Gleason. I mean, I think this book is so freaking handsome and this guy's work. I loved it in Superman, but I think he's now a revelation on Spider-Man. Similar to what we said the last time around. I mean, like his work artwork here is definitely taking, I think, an otherwise kind of dreary story and, and, and picking it up a little bit. And, you know, we're also dealing with some visuals here or some settings, at least, that while there's obviously a lot of potential for, for some visual interests, like, you know, some of these characters like the Hitman or the Foreigner or even Silver Sable. I mean, these are not necessarily the most like, you know, th- th- these ain't Doc Ock or Green Goblin in terms of visual arrestment. Right. So the fact that he's kind of making all this really interesting to look at to me is 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 really a testament to to his work. He just seems to never be able to do anything small. Like everything is big. And in superhero comics, I I think that's a a major plus. I mean, I I think I find his superhero stuff more exciting than his kind of like people talking to people stuff, which is true for most, I think, artists in in comics, especially for him. I mean, his superheroics are are fabulous. And, And with a character like Superman, that was very easy to capitalize on because Superman is like the biggest of them all. Like he is just like grand splashy superhero from beginning to end. But with Spider-Man, like he's modified his approach. And I think it fits right in with the world of Spider-Man. I mean, his stuff is emotional and dynamic and 
I love all the experimental page layouts. It makes everything so much more exciting. As good as this art was, I mean, like, you know, I feel like this comic as a story was a bit all over the place. I mean, we have a kind, a couple of different threads going on at one time, and I, I can't say that I'm sold on the story in any of these threads right now. Do you want to kind of get into that a little bit? And then obviously we could talk more about some of the cool Gleason stuff as we go through it. But like, I mean, like to me, as a story, this comic's a bit of a mess. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think the one universal thing that you can say about Nick Spencer is that like he's whenever he writes stuff, like it's always like thoughtfully written. Like I, I, I never read a character saying something and think that's out of character or that doesn't make sense. But I think where he struggles the most is in structural stuff, especially doing a book twice monthly where you know, he's serving multiple different masters. Like, I, I don't know how much editorial wanted him to shoe in a 2099 event into this book or whatever, but there are so many elements here that like, while there are some signs that it's congealing in this issue, they still feel so disparate from each other that like every other page, you don't really know what comic you're reading, much less a Spider-Man comic. I mean, like this is the least Spider-Man-y I think Nick Spencer has gone in his run thus far. Yeah, I would agree with that. But yeah, I mean, like the 2099 stuff is really feels tacked on in, in, in a really kind of obnoxious way. And, and I'm not saying like it's obnoxious to do a 2099 event. I mean, it's it's fine. But at the same token, I don't know if this is really selling me on it at all. I mean, I feel like we're kind of just like repeating beats from the last issue, you know, like there's a crisis and Miguel, Miguel O'Hara's back and he's a man out of time and things are happening. And we, we, we you know, like it just feels very kind of repetitive to to it feels a lot like the Craven stuff we were getting much earlier in this in this run where Spencer was kind of throwing it in at the beginning as a as a you know as a carrot to wave out there but like not really thinking how to build on it beyond what he had done an issue earlier I mean I know the ending starts to build on it but like in terms of like bringing us back into this event I I, I had to kind of check I'm like am I reading the same issue again I think you're right. By the ending, there seems to be multiple other threads that are moving towards tying into whatever the thing that is that kicked off the crisis that 2099 Spider-Man is dealing with. Like, I'm not sure if it is the the invention of the machine that can read the future or the appearance of Doctor Doom at the UN. One of those things seems to tie into whatever this 2099 character is doing. But I think maybe it's you know, kind of a fundamental flaw to have the Spider-Man 2099 character not remember what he's doing in the past because it's impossible to invest in whatever the threat is that he is coming back for if he doesn't even seem to remember what it is. Yeah, I think that's a it's a great way of putting it. Like, I'm not quite getting the urgency of the moment here beyond the fact that we're now we've now spent multiple issues and we know we're about to get into this big event that's going to tie into more issues and more of our money if we so choose to spend it. There doesn't seem to be a ton of urgency beyond that. So I'm probably more partial to Miguel O'Hara than than uh, than others are, Dan. I mean, maybe even more than you. I'm not sure. But like, so like, I kind of want to give this event a chance. But like, in terms of a, of a lead in this, this has been pretty milquetoast for me. Without that like goal in mind, there's no ticking clock here, right? Like I, when I see Dr. Doom show up at the end of the book or I see this invention of this time manipulation field thing, 
I'm not sure how much threat to read into that because I don't actually know what it is we're, we're working our way toward. So it's like, you know, nor, normally you can use tension to tie a bunch of jumbled scenes together because, you know, ultimately these it's like a Rube Goldberg machine that's going to pay off at some point with like whatever the cereal being poured for for uh, for somebody to eat, you know, or Pee Wee to eat. Like, I don't know what that is here. So it's like I am watching a bunch of disparate things, hoping that they're going to congeal. I, I do want to shout out to the art specifically in the 2099 section. Like I think it's amazing. And I think it's especially incredible for the work of Matthew Wilson, the colorist, because he does really wonderful stuff here, like shooting stuff into black and white, mixing up colors, using negative space. And uh, I just think the coloring in this book alongside Patrick Gleason's work has been fabulous. So we move from that back to the Spider-Man Silver Sable, you know, encounter with the foreigner, which I think was the kind of exciting thing from the previous issue. We got that brilliant splash page introducing Silver Sable. And you know what? It's, it's, I'm glad we got that splash page in the previous issue because it seems as though that's like the last major splash page for a while that we'll be getting until they inevitably retcon this retcon of Silver Sable in all of her glory. This is quite an interesting reveal. For starters, Dan, and like if this is me just not paying close enough attention to, to Spider-Man plots for the last couple of years, I mean, did, did we know that Sable and Foreigner were an item? I have no idea. Okay. I, I don't think so, unless it happened in some B-book I'm not aware of. I, I found this entire section to be very confusingly written. I mean, I understand the general gist of what was going on and, of course, the recon of the recon that we basically got within it. I got thrown from the from the get-go when it, like, it appeared that Sable was actually not on the side of Spider-Man here and was kind of, you know, with, was with foreigner and then Spider-Man quipped something about you have terrible taste in men. And I'm like, wait, where did I miss something here? Was I supposed to know that like she was actually a threat when she wasn't a threat initially? You know what I mean? Like I, like it seemed like she was there to save the day last issue and it was anything but. Yeah. That confused me too. And I, I was doubly confused by the, you know, there's this brilliant, visual moment at least where Teresa Parker blows off Sable's head like that that splash page was unforgettable like I when I turned the page on that I was like whoa I can't believe a Spider-Man comic went here in that kind of I mean I know it's a robot but it's still kind of graphic seeing pieces of like a human face flung all around the page with Teresa looking you know like Heaven forbid, I actually think Teresa Parker looks cool. I mean, that's kind of what I was referring to earlier in this episode, Dan, in terms of like, I mean, these are all characters that I don't generally, I mean, not to sound shallow, I don't generally think of these characters as being really cool looking characters. And like that, that page specifically was like, wow, that's a really cool visual, <laughs> you know, like that's, yeah, that's something yeah. you don't get in a Spider-Man comic. And it's basically Sable and Teresa Parker. Like who thought, who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> don't tell Sony they're going to green light a movie. <laughs> the moment following that super confused me because like there's like this disembodied voice coming from nowhere and this truck that seems to pull up like uh, the the way it was laid out on the page was super confusing to me and ultimately the reveal is that like that wasn't silver sable it was a life model decoy that like you know that's the most spider-man thing ever is life model <laughs> decoys silver sable had actually been 
kind of damaged in that fight with the rhino uh, during the end of the earth arc, you know, like over a hundred issues ago, she did survive, but this has been a life model decoy all this time of the past few silver sale stories that we've gotten, you know, during the Dan slot run. I, I I'm of like you, I'm of two feelings about this, which is like, cool. They fixed that like retcon that Dan slot did where silver sable died and then came back completely unharmed which was super lackluster. And I, I remember specifically you and I complaining about it on a show, but now it's like, we're so far removed from that. It's like, did, did we need to really go back and fix it? It's like, it's like you got a point for your team, but only because the goalie scored backwards or something like that. <laughs> You're like, okay, good. We got a point, but do we need to do this? Definitely a bit of a cell phone here. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, and well, and I, before we started recording, I joked to you like, so basically the recon is like, well, you thought I was dead, but I was alive, but I'm really only kind of alive. We were disappointed when when she was brought when Sable was brought back. I think it was that first imminent issue with Norman Osborn, right? That when that that that, that we brought her back and and if we go back to the tape, I'm sure we probably made some snarky comments about it. But the same token, like yeah, you know, it didn't have much of an impact on me beyond like any other like back from the dead situation that we've had in my. 30 something years of reading comic books. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, there was nothing that remarkably unusual about it. And now I feel like to like then backtrack some more and then introduce this element of it. Like, I don't like, okay. So clearly Sable was not hunky dory upon being, you know, believed to be drowned in the ocean by the rhino. What is, what is she and how is this going to advance anybody's stories and comics because she's basically i mean you know she's kind of useless at this point am i right i mean i don't mean to be derogatory but i'm like i'm trying to figure out i mean listen we are we gonna like make her like the oracle is in dc or something i i I don't quite get what's going on here or what the potential is i think i'm more positive in that regard than you like i I think silver sable's kind of been a bit like a bit of a stalemate for like decades right like she hasn't she's kind of been the same thing kind of just the merc, the merc for hire for, for a while or like trying to reclaim Simcaria in some way. But like, it, at least in this, we're getting a new status quo for her. Like even if she ultimately does get out of this and gets the life equation, or whatever it is, whatever insane thing that they've cocked up, it's like the infinity formula. I'm calling it the life equation, but the infinity formula like that, like allows her to, you know, would allow her if lucky to survive this and go back to being silver sable. At least that means that she's going to be hooked on this drug for the rest of her life. And that maybe it gives her some new lease on life that gives her an interesting, you know, thing to do when she shows up from here on out. I mean, uh, these characters have to be switched up every now and again. Do I think it was very convolutedly done? Yeah. It was a lot to bite off on one issue. Like, I mean, not to mention that there is a continuity error in the reintroduction of her where it describes her as being drowned by the rhino, but then she falls out of the ship and is burned up. And it's like, well, was she underwater or was she falling? Like which, which one was it? You know? And I'm sure there's a no prizey way to solve that. It was just a lot to chew, like to bite off in one, in one, in one go. But like, ultimately, like I, I, I have to say, I think it is good, you know, to see a creator doing something new with a character, even if it is kind of nitpicky. 
after you you know said what you said there, I kind of take back what I said a little bit about what what we do with this character now. I mean, you're right; it is good to have something different here. But I I, I also agree with you about the fact that I think it's more the way this was kind of shoehorned in. I mean, like I, like I wasn't even thinking about the situation with Silver Sable when this was brought up, and you know, like you know, we we've talked about how. You know, it feels like Nick Spencer has spent a lot of time on this book kind of repairing the wrongs of previous wrongs, quote unquote, of previous creators. Uh, You know, we saw this obviously like Black Cat for a change, you know, and, 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 and there's plenty of other examples. I mean, to me, this is almost like getting too cute about it. It's like, okay, well, you know, no one, no one was really asking about this unless like, you know, like someone was really hung up on that episode we did two years ago, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like, and, and like you said, it seems so far removed, like to kind of like do this major, like bait and switch with this character here. And also kind of, like you said, get some of the details of what happened in the first place wrong. It just, it just felt very convoluted and confusing and, and left me kind of like, okay, and then it kind of dovetails into this political drama with Simcaria and Latveria. And I know that this is how they bring in 2099. But then, like, like at this point, I'm trying to think, where was Spider-Man? Like, when was the last time we saw Spider-Man in this comic? <laughs> that I agree with. Like, it's a lot. Like, the, the political ramifications of that during the Norman Osborn story, like, what, a year plus ago, was a lot to kind of swallow then. And, and, and shoved into this already convoluted story about 2099, it's just a lot to keep up with here. Like uh, she's reclaiming her country, but did she already do that? Like there's just a lot going on. And I I don't know if that was the right thing to kind of shove in here. I I mean, obviously I I can, I'll take it back later when other issues delve into it deeper, but, and this all does elegantly come together in some way. But right now reading this issue on its own, it's just like, boy, my head is swimming with details and not in like a Jonathan Hickman X-Men way where I'm like, you know, really pouring over every detail on the page. It's more just like a, what is the narrative here? Because yeah, where is Spider-Man? What's his role in all of this? Because this is a kind of political drama that's really outside of the, the world of Spider-Man, typical Spider-Man narratives. Although we did get a year plus of that during volume four. I think of a story like this and I'm thinking of like the Assassin's Nation plot from what was that? Like the, the late eighties, early nineties, that those McFarlane, Michelini issues with, with Silver Sable and Chance was in that and Paladin and all these other characters that you just kind of don't really think about anymore. <laughs> like, it's like, why are we, why are we revisiting these? <laughs> Well, we do have a preview for an upcoming issue of Amazing Spider-Man that does feature Chance on the cover. So, you know, uh, all these old things are becoming new, including Hitman in this issue. I mean, like, truly, when was the last time we saw Hitman? I mean, I'm usually good at this stuff, Dan. I can't think of... I can't think like what was it Ross Andrews time on the book? I I I mean, mean, it's very possible. I mean, you know, we'll, 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 we'll have a hitman reference in, in our, our main season three episode that comes out around this time too. But no, I, I, yeah, I have no idea when the last time we saw the hitman was. (laughs) So, um, you know, just to finish up this scene, you know, Teresa, you know, just cold bloodedly kills what she thinks is silver sable. And, Spider-Man calls her out on it, like, you know, suggesting, oh, you knew it was a robot, right? And she doesn't answer, which basically means I had no idea. I just meant to kill this person. And she's really out for revenge on this red shirt friend of hers 
who we never really know much about. And I think it robs it of a bit of dramatic power here. Although I also don't think we needed to spend time establishing friends of Teresa Parker, because then you're really getting into territory that I don't want to be in, in a Spider-Man book because I can already barely stand the idea of Teresa Parker. But this seems to be, I think kind of taking her down a road of establishing. She's someone who can kill without like mercy or, or, or without empathy or sympathy or whatever the word I'm looking for is. Do you think this is headed somewhere? Is this, I mean, could this please God be a setup to reveal Teresa Parker is not a Parker or something? I, you know, I don't have a clue of that, but is this a storyline you're at all interested in? Interested in not, not particularly, but I mean, like maybe this is a way also not, not to, not to be kind of, glib about it but maybe this is a way to get her out of the book i mean i don't know i mean like yeah i i I, we talked about this last time dan i mean like i i still don't quite get why we have this character and this storyline in amazing spider-man right now i mean you know i really kind of just you know well first we thought it was a one note graphic novel thing and then you know god bless chip zadarsky for bringing her back i guess but like it's just like every, you know, it's like an unlucky penny. Every time I, I feel like we're, we're done with the Teresa Parker story, she keeps showing up here. And I guess there's some shades of gray stuff that we can explore here. I mean, you know, Lord knows we always love our shades of gray characters and superhero comics, I guess. But I just still don't feel the work has been put in to get anybody invested in this character. Nor do I feel like anybody in their right mind truly accepts like that this is Peter Parker's sister, you know, I think that's still going to be like the, the hang up. And, and I don't know what can be. It's kind of like the situation with Silk in my mind, you know, like, oh, you know, someone else was bit by the spider. But no one really kind of buys that because like a retcon that big is like, you know, to be so casually worked back in feels shallow to me and i feel the same way about Teresa parker he didn't have a this is the you know what even if you convince me for the next 10 years and keep putting it in the story that she's his sister i don't buy it (laughs) i guess that's what it boils down to (laughs) both that and silk are both such dumb tropes too which is the like this thing that gave someone powers gave someone else powers or you have a secret lost super spy sister you know like uh, these are both such boring comic tropes from from a series that's supposed to not have them you know like that's what makes spider-man great is that like he's an everyman he's not leaning into these kind of dumb silly things even though he often does but like messing with his origin which i think both of these do in some way i think Teresa less so because i guess he can still have the same origin and have a sister but like yeah i i don't know i i it, there's some, they both cheapen the character i think in some way and i think it's a shame because you could have great Spider-Man female characters that don't tread on such hollowed ground and and don't cheapen it and and they would avoid this criticism. It's not even so much that I feel like it it alters the origin or like, you know, don't touch my don't touch my classic Spidey. It's not it's not even that, but like I said, like when you bring in something like like this for lack of a better phrase outrageous, I I just have a hard time accepting it as like, like I just I just don't accept it. I guess that's what it boils down to. I mean, that sounds really stubborn and makes me sound like one of those like really cranky internet comic book fans, but it's got nothing to do with, oh, you know, it's a female character or, or, you know, oh, you can't have a sister. Or, you know, this is impossible or you know, it's just like, 
to me, like like you said, this is very it's a very inelegant kind of forced retcon of something that really doesn't you know after sixty plus years of Spider Man comics doesn't make sense. Why 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 should I accept this now? Like like why after all this time are we am I supposed to care about this character that you're literally just telling me is someone important without actually demonstrating? why I should care that they're important. I think that's what it boils down to as well. I mean, like, if Teresa Parker was not Peter's alleged sister, would we care about her? Like, is there anything about her that makes us want to care about her? Not really. <laughs> no. You know, like, like make me care about her first, and then maybe I'll actually consider the relationship. But that's the thing. I, I don't care. I, there's nothing to care about her except this mandate that she's a sister now. So whatever. I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to, you know, basically validate poor writing and, and, and say like that this is a good thing that we should just accept it on face value. We are well past the era of uh, every comic is someone's first comic. I mean, not saying that that doesn't happen still. And, and I'm, I'm glad it does. Like comic sales are going up. But like, imagine this is your first issue of Spider-Man. You're, you're cracking open the cover and you've got like Spider-Man 2099, Silver Sable's head being blown off in some obscure continuity reference to 120 some issues ago. And then Spider-Man's got a sister. Like it's just nuts. I will say though, and we need to like, you know, come up with a sound effect for this cue, the kindred alarm, because, you know, as Teresa is like leaving the scene and I do like that this scene does put Spider-Man in a classically no win situation where it's like, if you side with silver sable to help her save your country, you're siding with a cold blooded murderer. But like, Teresa's the wrong one to deliver this to Peter because she just in her head cold blooded killed someone. So whatever. But that is a good predicament to put Spidey in where he's got no good choice. But she does say when she's leaving the scene, she makes a comment about making a deal with the devil and the devil getting his due. And that's my kindred alarm for the episode. And uh, and, and, uh, there you go. Maybe Rick will toss in a sound cue here. All right, so once we get out of all of this wonderful drama, we're back at ESU and we get this future telling machine, which just can go nowhere good, right? No, and it's the kind of like thing that I, like drove me nuts during the Horizon Lab stories because like every other page, someone will be inventing some like completely like world shattering invention. And I know it's comics and there's a certain amount of that allowed, like. There's, I, I always think about Peter creating like a cryo machine where he's freezing worms. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Invention that he created. <laughs> like that would revolutionize the entire planet. And here it's like just one of Peter's classmates just so happens to, you know, be the guy that invents a machine that could read the future. And Peter is inextricably linked to it. Like there's a certain level of convenience in comic stories to have this be like his first day back at ESU and this stuff is going on. Like to me, I'm just like, Oh, okay. But not to mention that I'm already kind of just bored of the ESU thing already. You kind of called it last time. And at that, at that point I was like, Oh, let's give it a chance. But you're right. This just seems very kind of hackneyed and cliched right now. Uh, <laughs> I don't really have much else to say. Like, I think it's an effectively handled sequence, but like, you know, as, as someone who's already read Spider-Man at ESU a half dozen times, you know, there's got to be a more clever and organic way to have Spider-Man involved with the goings-ons of New York without kind of shoving him around the most gifted people 
that he spontaneously meets, you know, every other issue. Like, I mean, the daily bugle felt more realistic, but now with the internet, it's like, does he need to be so directly connected to all this stuff? We finally dovetail back into what we started with, which is I'm assuming how we're going to basically break into this whole 2099 story, which is that, Doctor Doom is is the Archbishop uh, Ferdinand of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> it's going to set off a war, right, Dan? His assassination, right? Chameleon sets up Hitman to kill Doctor Doom. I, I imagine with some fancy sniper rifle thing, because that's what's finally going to do it with Doom. You know, all those years, <laughs> it's, it's the Hitman and the Chameleon. It, it took a gun on the roof. Who'd have thought? Right, right. My Reed Richards is just like, ah, finally. I mean, we got to see some cool uh, Gleason Doom visuals. Yeah, this is the big, this seems to be the big tie-in to this whole 2099 event. We started this issue with it, and then we kind of dovetail into this Spider-Man story that really doesn't have a lot of Spider-Man in it, that's got like some really random stuff in it. And then we kind of like jut back out into this 2099 thing. And I don't know, like at no point do I feel like these were all graceful transitions. A lot of this kind of feels attached with rivet guns, if that makes sense. Signal the rivet gun alert. Well, I use it a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to point out my favorite detail of this is that Betty Brant is now apparently the Daily Bugle foreign correspondent. Ask her how well that worked out for her husband, Ned Leeds, because he died when he was the Daily Bugle foreign correspondent. While dealing with the foreigners. Like, this all feels ominous. I mean, maybe Nick Spencer needs to undo that now. I mean, you know. (laughs) Oh, I was going to say, are we setting up for Brady Brandt to be like a random throat slit character when we turn the page? (laughs) We're going to find out that it's going to be for like 10 issues where Betty Brandt's clearly kindred. And then like in a one shot issue, Betty Brandt's going to have her throat slit right before they reveal who Kindred is. And it's going to be Betty Brandt. <laughs> you're just you're just angling to obsess over a new villain reveal now, aren't you? The new, the new worst villain reveal ever is. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's give grades on this thing. What did you think of it, this issue, Mark? Yeah, this is going to sound a little harsh, but I, like I said, I kind of felt this was a jumbled mess. So I'm going to give this a D plus. And I'm similar in, in, with you. I, I'm at the C minus range for me. That artwork is just enough to save it. I think if this was an issue earlier, I I would have said I would have said the same. But like you know, like now I've had two issues of Gleason. Gleason's great, but like this story is just not doing it. So like I, I got to go back to thinking like, ah, did I really enjoy this comic outside of a couple of visuals? No, I didn't. So D plus. That's totally fair. And with that twenty ninety nine alpha issue coming out, maybe we'll finally actually get into this story because looking at the solicitor, at least the checklist in the back of the book, it's like wow, this story is like six issues it's like an event that just came out of nowhere which like i think is also part of the problem it's like suddenly we're in a, an event again like who was asking for this yeah exactly, exactly this episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful patreon subscribers whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research if you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while also getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. 
So thanks again to everyone who supported us on Patreon. You've pushed us over a hundred members for the first time. It's really awesome to have such a supportive community and we thank you guys again. And if you're one of those who's listening and you're like, Hey, I'm really enjoying these reviews. Go check it out. Why not get in on the fun with us on Patreon? But in the meantime, that's enough Patreon plugging. Please enjoy this review of Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 5, Number 34. Enjoy our review of Amazing Spider-Man 34. Today, Mark, you and I are going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man, Number 34. That's of Volume 5, but if you are a purist, that's Issue 835, as we slowly march towards 850, where they reboot the numbering. Mark, we're three issues into this 2099 arc, event, mini-event, crossover. I'm still not really sure what this is. And, you know, I think some of the plots are starting to congeal. Uh, What did you think about this storyline, you know, on its own and in comparison to the two previous chapters? You know, it's funny, Dan, like there's something kind of paradoxical going on right now, because like you just mentioned, this is the third installment of this 2099 series. And in one breath, I'm like, oh, wow, we're, we're already three issues into this thing, like, like. I think a part of that is like because I just don't feel like much is happening in these sto- in the story to advance the plot. Yet at the same token, like it feels like the story has been going on forever because nothing is happening at the same time, and it's been three comics, which is like now almost two months of time has passed. So, so yay, I guess as you can tell from that very brief introduction. I mean, yeah, I, I guess things are starting to happen to a degree, but I mean, this this is just a very glacial pace that this story is unfurling in and I feel you know I still feel like beats are being repeated over and over again especially in how the story is set up and and, you know we can we can talk about this if you want but it might be echoing what we've said in some earlier episodes but like I just I just don't get why we're having this story right now it just just feels so out of place and it it killed all the momentum that we had from the kindred stories and the uh, absolute carnage tie-ins a few months ago and it it just this just feels like it's a momentum killer right now for this book and and this book kind of was starting to move again and and now we're, we're we're back to kind of where we were with all the hunted stuff and it's just a it's just a big disappointment for me well mark if time is a flat circle and this book about time travel you know, is what we're dealing with. This thing's proving that time is a flat circle because we keep repeating these same beats over and over and over again. You know, I do think this one moved things a little bit forward, but let's let's talk about this 2099 event, you know, in its entirety. I think I've kind of expressed my confusion about this both on the show and online, but I, I remain very confused about the 2099 event, uh, you know, both how it's being marketed and how it's play it out. I mean, I, I couldn't even put my finger on what this is supposed to be. You know, I, I think we're three issues in and I read 2099 Alpha and so I'm really four issues in and I don't even really know what the central plot of this story is. It seems to be based around Doom, but that kind of question in my mind really is like kind of hanging over all of this, which is like, give me a hook. Give me a reason to care about the time travel. Like, you know, give me a reason to invest in the stakes of this story. And, you know, and I'll I'll buy into it. But, like, it seems like, you know, Nick Spencer is being intentionally withholding 
in a way that I think is very damaging to what's going on. Yeah, I mean, like, think back to when uh, 2099 was introduced a few years ago during the Superior Spider-Man era. I mean, like, I felt like that was actually very elegantly done in the fact that, you know, there had been all these Marvel events that were dealing with time travel and, and like, the fabric of, of the multiverse and the timelines and whatnot, and basically, you know, kind of coming to the conclusion of, hey, you're damaging the timeline so 2099 is here to kind of set things right, right? Is that is that a pretty that's a pretty simple explanation for how they brought this universe in, right? Yeah, and I, you know a similar one. To what it seems to be that they're doing here, right? Like the end of this issue seems to assert that the future has been has been changing rapidly, and everybody in the 2099 timeline is experiencing small changes that have been begun to accumulate because of how the past is changing and. That's interesting if it doesn't completely undo the very nature of how time is understood in the Marvel Universe as a constant, right? Am I wrong? That's how the Marvel Universe works? This time around, it's almost more of like a... a, a tail wagging the dog whereas I feel like you know a few years ago like there were other major things going on in Marvel that I felt like 2099 dovetailed nicely into and now it's like now they're 2099 is kind of forcing the issue it's like well no stuff is going on in your present and now we're here from the future to deal with it and it's like but but wait what what is it? you know what i mean like we don't know what it is yet that's the thing we're still like trying to figure out well wait why are you here like like what's actually what's actually happening or has happened that that's like like i think that's the that's the where the where the lack of clarity is like like i'm not sensing the urgency from them because i'm not there's been nothing really in Spider-Man or other. I mean, maybe maybe there's something going on in other series that I'm just not as keyed in on. But like, it doesn't feel like the urgency from the current books is there. Which is why what kind of makes me think, Dan, honestly, that this whole 2099 event is something that's been kind of like sitting for a while, and maybe they finally got some missing pieces into place to to get it all out now, and now we're getting it. Because like there's almost like an evergreen quality to this and it's and and I think like that lack of like timeliness and urgency to it is is killing it as well. Well, Mark, bring out the rivet gun because, you know, that's how this story seems to have been attached to the timeline. You know, your your classic metaphor there, because we just moved from one kind of crossover event into this thing with no lead in at all you know and we criticize this book sometimes for leaning on the lean-ins a little bit too hard but like boy we're three issues in and i feel like we're still just kind of like being teased at what we're gonna get you know i shouldn't have bought four issues and not know what what i'm reading about and i feel like that finding out what that hook is would allow me to believe in the stakes of everything that that's going on here you know I, like i look at an issue like this one and you know, from the beginning to the end of the issue, we've got time travel and then it turns into kind of like global cataclysmic takeover. And that's something that like Kirby and Lee could do in a single issue. You know, like their Fantastic Four issues would, you know, resolve an entire world's wide threat. But that's because they set up the stakes and the story for their characters right up front and we get right into it, you know, but here it's like, it's tantric, you know, it's like, how long can we go before we establish why anyone is involved in any of this? All three of these issues. I mean, it, it really does kind of 
remind me of what we were getting with the uh, Craven teases very early on in this volume from Spencer in the worst kind of way in terms of the how it, I'm comparing it. We're just, we're just kind of getting these same beats with Miguel issue after issue, like like. I'm from the future and the future is dying. You know what I mean? Like it's it's like the same rhetoric and like the same kind of like passive urgency, like like forced forced upon urgency. Like like this is bad because I keep saying it's bad, but I'm not showing you how it's bad. And and like it, like you said, it's it's so tantric and like so just also repetitive and like give me a new intro to an issue, please. Like can we can 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 we finally just like open one of these issues up without like Miguel just like kind of babbling on about whatever, whatever he wants us to be worried about. (laughs) Although I will say I could look at Miguel babbling on about whatever he's worried about to quote you. So long as it was drawn by Patrick Gleason. I mean, this guy, his Miguel O'Hara and Spider-Man 29. I mean, his everything is fascinating to look at, but like, boy, I mean the shadows, the, Twisting perspectives. I mean, this guy is the most radical artist we've had on this book. Maybe than that, like really bizarre stilt man issue we got like five or six years ago. If you remember that one with the the Deadpool cover, um, like the art in that was like so far out there. But this thing is like solid. I mean, it is really something special and uh, it's the only thing that's really holding this together for me in any regard yeah i mean gleason is the star of of this arc for sure and even even the plot beats where i'm not all that interested or find them predictable or find them kind of rote i i love the art that's associated with it i want i want story finally <laughs> you know what i mean like i <laughs> like, like, feel like this art is being wasted and and like you know like there were instances during the Dan Slot run where I felt like sometimes like the art would elevate Slot's sometimes sloppy storytelling. And like, I guess I'm a little frustrated by the fact that as good as Gleason is and as, as wonderful as this, as this book is to look at, why, why is it not elevating the story at all? I mean, like, like that, I mean, like what would this story look like without Patrick Gleason? You know what I mean? Like this, this could be, this would be really a horror show, right? Oh my goodness. I, I don't even want to imagine it. I mean, like think of those like Eminem slot stories. I mean, like slot would be like kind of rambling all over the place with other artists and Eminem would kind of always bring him together. And like, and I feel like there was, there was like a real like camaraderie and process there and that's, and they both kind of elevated each other. Spencer's a good writer, I I think. And Gleason's a fantastic artist. So why, why is this not, working together like what where's the disconnect i mean i i do think that's something to kind of monitor provided gleason continues to work on this book in some facet after this 2099 arc i wonder if the the you know the disparity in the art because gleason's all over the place i mean there's really expressive experimental stuff from page to page and for me it reads really well together you know you know barring the kind of confusing narrative and when he does kind of dialogue scenes, he can really kind of like rein it in. But like then I think about Nick Spencer's best partner, and it's probably Ryan Otley. Like all of his issues have been really solid. And I wonder, you know, how much that is, you know, just a camaraderie and and, you know, 
working together as a team. And and Otley's first arc with Spider-Man, if you you know, barring the first issue, you know, was kind of sloppy and all over the place. And I I wonder if maybe it's just going to take time for this art team and and writing team to kind of come together and and may, find it working out. But for in the meantime, like images of Spider-Man's back as he faces this kind of gloomy city with doom bots floating overhead like that stuff is so cool like i'll take it and again a, a shout out to the colorists on this book which there are astoundingly three of you know matthew wilson was the only colorist on the last one but here we've got d cuniff and chris o'halloran you know i i couldn't tell the difference between who was where and and when so they've you know been cohesive but i mean the coloring in this book is also fabulous and you know, they're bringing a lot to it. I don't know if it was, they needed three people to boost the team up a little bit or, or what. It's pretty stunning. Let's talk a little bit about some of the plot beats here. I mean, more specifically. So obviously, you know, we I, I keep talking about this, this kind of repetitive intro, but we do learn a little bit more uh, about Miguel here, which is that Doom, or I guess Doom 2099, sent him here to... to to fix up, fix up the crisis that's 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 brewing here in the present day, you know. Besides the visuals, I mean, I, I guess my first comment is, well, it's nice that we're giving Miguel a little more agency. Like, again, it kind of keeps going back to the same point. What what has this story done to make you? And I'm asking you, Dan Gavazdan, make you care about Miguel O'Hara right now? Nothing really. I mean, I have a nostalgic like for Miguel O'Hara while not really being super tied into the 2099 universe, which I think really played itself out in reading 2099 Alpha, which mostly read as gibberish to me. Like, I just didn't get any of it. Like, you know, there's the 2099 language that they use. And I'm reading this book and being like, am I supposed to understand what I'm reading here? Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, in, in the pages of this book, it's like, Boy, I love the way he looks, but he's not really doing much. And even when he is given the ability, when he suddenly remembers things, he kind of tells us nothing. So, like, you know, I think the first issue with him gave me more than this issue does. Right. We got like Lila showing up who apparently changed her style mid page, you know, and and there there are a few kind of like personal nostalgic hooks that got me but yeah i mean n- n- there's been no new characterization other than confusion for me to latch on to like here's an opportunity to kind of introduce an entire new audience to 2099 cuz you got to consider the last go round that was like 2013 2014 so i mean like okay yeah there still might be some readers who are holdovers from that reading the books now but there might be some new readers on on spider-man and, and in marvel right now and and you know probably their only other exposure to miguel o'hara might be the the stinger in into the spider-verse right i mean because like you know, we're we're fans that are connected to the '90s to a degree, probably even me more than you, based on our own age difference. But like, you know, nostalgia is only going to nostalgia for the '90s is only going to drive you so far uh, in this generation of readers. So like, you're, we're not getting any sense of who Miguel O'Hara is as a character, why we should care about him, why this matters that Doom is sending him here. I mean, it's it's like it's very confusing to me. It's very confusing that that this is how we're trying to 
introduce this character into this universe and into a book that's one of the more well-read Marvel books without anything really driving it. And, and uh, you know, like it's just it, it just seems like such a missed opportunity. I don't get it. I just don't get why we're not establishing Miguel O'Hara's character, his motivations, his kind of like sarcastic wit that's different than Spider-Man's, his darker edge uh, in terms of, you know, like there's there are distinctions between Miguel and, and Peter that obviously we have no representation of in this arc thus far. And Spencer has been both good at this and bad at this. I think, you know, there are times where he'll do these great flashbacks or summaries that clear up the kind of complicated history of Spider-Man. You know, I'm thinking about like the page where he explains all the different jobs that Mary Jane has had over the years. You know, I found that very elegant and well done and a nice summary. And there's not really one here for 2099 where or Miguel, and I feel like that would really help out a lot of new readers. It would help me out to read 2099 Alpha, which, again, I, I found completely indecipherable. And, you know, I'm the new audience that you want to hook with that, I guess. I mean, I'm not really a new audience, but if I can't get it, no one else is getting it. I, I assure you that. But then other times I feel like Spencer over relies on, you know, people's knowledge of these series. I mean, a lot of his stories in Spider-Man have been these kind of corrective tales but they're so specific, you know, that only people like you or I, Mark, would read them and go like, thank God we cleared up the Silver Sable thing, you know, and and that may be what he's relying on here for 2099, that there's some this kind of grander nostalgic memory than what we're receiving in the pages here. That's a that's a very misguided approach in terms of viewing who's reading comic books right now versus who read them, frankly, in the 90s. You know what I mean? Like like. I think the gap between he, here and then is even further. Well, I mean, it is. It, time is not a flat circle in this instance. <laughs> um, it's even further than it was when Dan Slott reintroduced it. And I felt like Dan Slott did a little bit more to kind of catch readers up who might have been lapsed. You know what I mean? So it, it's it's it just kind of boggles my mind but not not to belabor that too much let's talk a little bit about you know the, the the next part here of this issue which is peter now with this this jamie character talking about this future device and and, and jamie well there's two things going on this future device kind of gets scaled down a little bit in terms of its power potential which i think was kind of needed because like the last issue it just seemed like this thing was like the greatest invention of mankind. And now we kind of like, you know, kind of scale it back a little bit to be like, well, it just kind of predicts what people are going to have for lunch. <laughs> yeah. It made me believe in, in this premise a bit more than I did last issue where I was like, looks like Peter keeps bumping into these people, but then it just so happens this guy that he bumps into is like, actually, I really hadn't figured this thing out. And there's potential danger that could come from using this thing. And I'm like, all right, that sounds more like a college student in like a, you know, not a not so distant version of our universe. You know, I was like, okay, in a universe where a guy can invent a suit of armor, you know, in a cave, fine. You know, uh, I'll buy that this guy can kind of come up with a haphazard way to scan the multiverse. But this kind of then goes into Jamie asking Peter for his insights and knowledge from his par- his Parker industry days to help figure out a broader, more, and and also virtuous use for this technology. And of course, even Peter is like, wait, what? You don't want to work with me. And But it seems like that's going to be the, the case here. And I'm curious, 
what do you make of this? I mean, is this are, are we going to go back down into like either the Horizon Lab slash Parker Industry kind of subplots with Peter, or is this just going to be another way for Peter Parker to have egg on his face and to screw something up royally? Well, that's what I'm most curious about with this is because like giving him a success this early, especially in the way it's couched with this character who suggests like, hey, if you do this, this is like a good way to you know boost you towards like a thesis or. Something like that, right? Uh, am I wrong? That's how it's kind of positioned here. Yes, yeah. So then, like, are we going to be in this ESU plot line very for a very short period of time? Like, is this just kind of Peter's kind of get out of jail quickly and another way for Nick Spencer to play, you know, janitor and get and get him to be Doctor Parker faster than we thought, or are we, you know, positioning Peter to hang around at ESU for quite a longer time? Or to screw things up so badly he gets booted again. But that seems like a really weird thing to do to kind of elevate him into this position and then boot him out again so quickly. So I think we're either in, we're one or the other. We're either in ESCU for the long haul or we're in it for a very short period of time as Peter kind of develops this device. I don't know which one I, I prefer. I, I, I guess I kind of would like it to play out without a kind of get, you know, get fixed quickly kind of thing. But I also don't know that I really want to hang out at ESU for all that long. I'm, I'm kind of suffering the same conundrum you are. And, and and also, like, I've kind of, like, come around to something you said a few episodes ago about, like, these this kind of, like, supporting cast introduction, these ESU characters. I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, the, the, I mean this Jamie character seems nice enough, but, like, it feels like a supporting cast member in a kind of generic way that we've had before, are we really going over new ground here? And then, like you said, are we are we just using this as an excuse to fix something either positively or negatively too quickly? I don't know. But like, I mean, I, you know, I guess we'll wait and see. But like, I don't foresee this being a long game situation. So I, I, I it's, it's hard to see where this is. But it's hard to see where this is going in a way that makes me like really captivated to see what's going to happen with these relationships here. Because it just doesn't feel like... This is a relationship for Peter that has long-term potential for the book. He's just not a very interesting character to this Jamie guy. He's a plot device, you know, whereas you think about like the cast and crew of like Horizon Labs and Anna Maria Marconi, like all these characters that Dan Slott created are really memorable from the jump, right? I mean, say as much as you will about Sajani and how much we dislike that character, but like you know, she was at least memorable in some way. I, I can I can pull her name out of my hat years later, whereas, you know, maybe Jamie will develop. But right now, like, I couldn't even visually describe him to you. So Johnny is so memorable. I mispronounced her name for like three years on our show <laughs> and got yelled at by by listeners. So. It is true. Uh, so in the midst of, of the Peter-Jamie dialogue, there is an emergency. And that emergency is that... Dr. Doom is shot. So there there it is, folks. We got him. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> Doom. Doom is dead, right? Clearly, obviously, it had to happen. Yeah, you, you, you hate to see it, Dan. Well, well, Mark, I hate to tell you this. You know, this has never happened before in the history of Doom. It was a Doom bot. Right. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I guess, like... I'm of two minds of this, like obviously, duh, but also like, I guess like the comic kind of 
I mean, or at least uh, Spider-Man's dialogue to the extent kind of is like, well, of course it's a Doom bot, you know, like like they like they acknowledge it. But like, I also feel like for a moment, the characters like Chameleon and the, the is it the Countess or the Baroness or whatever, whatever her her her, her dignified title is like, I, I definitely felt like they were playing it off like, yeah, we got them. It's over. We t- finally took care of them. I'm like, really? Are they are they that dumb, or are they thinking the readers are that dumb, or are we like it's clearly going to be a, a a decoy of some sort? Yeah, I mean, it was weird because Chameleon, like, he suggests, well, if I knew you were going to kill him, I would have gotten out of this. And it's like, well, you did all the work to kill him, so like, what is it? Do you, did you think like it was impossible to kill him, or quite easy to kill him? And then I I love how conveniently Hitman is in, involved in this story, and then we just never see him again. Like, <laughs> it, it, just forget about the guy with the gun, you know. And suddenly Doom is raining hell down on New York, and it's like, we'll get to that in a minute. But like, what an oversized reaction to a Doombot getting killed. I mean, how many Doombots have died in the history of Doom comics? I I, I couldn't even begin to tell you. Which, by the way, I think it's kind of fun that Doom, of course, like has body doubles. I mean, because all good dictators and, you know, certain current politicians have body doubles, we believe. I do like how Spider-Man, like you mentioned, reacts to this. This was the part where the book really kind of came alive to me. I mean, hard to believe that the part of the book that I like the most is the one where Spider-Man is involved. You know, he kind of has this kind of fun monologue as he's swinging to the scene, which... You know, I always love a good swinging monologue where, you know, he's talking about like, do I should I really feel bad about this? You know, it's doom. He's terrible. You know, even for a guy with a nobody dies code, I can't feel too bad about doom dying. Although I I have to admit, I also feel like I've missed doom's reversion to evil. Like, wasn't he kind of a good guy just like six months ago? Yeah, I I mean, I I honestly can't keep track of the Doctor Doom face turns and heel turns when it comes to this stuff. But it did feel like one of the last times I was reading about him in a book, he was kind of more on the side of good than bad. Who knows? Well, first of all, it's worth noting, you know, not to go back to what we were saying earlier. I mean, the visual of like Doom, Doom being assassinated is freaking phenomenal from Gleason, right? I mean, like, it just felt, like, very dramatic and grand. Like, it, it felt like it was something out of a history book. Like, I made the joke, I think, in the last episode that Doom is, like, our, our what's it, Arch, Archduke Ferdinand or whatever. <laughs> I think it's explicit but, in this book that they're doing an Archduke Ferdinand thing. Yeah, but, like, it, but it, like, visually really felt like it. You know what I mean? Like, it was really, really well done by Gleason. I even like the visual of Spider-Man, like, landing on top of his corpse with his, spy, you know, webbing backpack and, you know, being smothered by all the, you know, Latvarians as he tears the head off of the Doombot. I mean, I thought that sequence was really cool and, and visually exciting, you know, and then getting blasted by the, the Doombot head and the headless body kind of wandering around. I mean, that was such a cool sequence. You know, it, that was the part where I was like, okay, things are finally starting to congeal here. And it feels like a classic Spidey tale, you know, in regards to all the classic Spidey Doom battles, which, you know, are, there's a few of them. Doom always has a habit of kind of showing up in big moments for Spider-Man. I mean, I always think of that Ramita 
uh, JMS story too, which I mean, it wasn't really a fight between the two, but you know, the, the airport MJ uh, scene. I believe we did a whole podcast on that. I believe we did as well. But now, of course, like Doom's the you know the Doombot and his you know the headless Doombot does bring Miguel and Peter together in a scene that I was kind of like okay finally we're getting it we're gonna get them together but like it just kind of fell flat didn't it well it's such a vague explanation that Miguel provides before he kind of like explode disappears which again visually arresting like I guess give me more time bomb Miguel O'Hara. Uh, I'll read a comic about him just exploding across multiple timelines. But yeah, I mean, he, you know, he finally gets to his moment. He says, you know, he finally conveniently just now remembers. And then he's like, well, I don't really have anything to say to you. I'm, you know, I'm going to give you a vague bit of advice. And it was like, oh, I just want something concrete to attach myself onto. Like, what is this story about? Yeah, and like Miguel is getting like attacked by these guys, but we don't we don't know who they are, right? Like it's just like who are these people, right? They're like I guess they're employees of Roxon, but they keep kind of like what what is the letter they have on their chest? Is it a P? I believe so. Like I rack my brain and, and someone's listening to this screaming at their podcast right now, going, Those are the da 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 twins, but like I don't know who these villains are and they kind of seem to like disappear moments later anyway. You know, they they went off and now they're playing poker with Hitman. I, I don't like these characters that we've. I mean, where the hell is Silver Sable in all of this? Like, uh, is that storyline done now? There, there's a kind of review of this issue in, um, you know, in a moment. Is like, where are all these missing characters? There's just too many storylines going on, and and the one moment that could have allowed us clarity did not provide it. We got visuals of Doombots overtaking Manhattan, right? I mean, super cool. I mean, that kind of like them with their arms out, like in like the kind of like cross pose filling up the sky, I thought was really rad. I mean, rad and also like ominous and creepy as hell. I mean, like this is, I mean, you know, like you said, this is like really kind of pushing the boundary stuff for a Spider-Man book. We don't usually see visuals like this in an ASM, I would say. I mean, there's an image at the end of Doom, kind of his like shadow over the entire city of Manhattan because he plunges it into blackout, which like, I don't know how he did that. And this is the kind of like storytelling skip that I feel like Stan Lee and Kirby would do where it's like, Oh, well now the villain just suddenly has control over the whole city. But like the stakes weren't established in the same way. Like this is a much more tactile grounded universe. So like for him to just pull that switch seems kind of bizarre to me, but like, I did like the visual of giant doom. It reminds me of the, like, the Kingpin, what is it, like issue 51 or whatever, where Kingpin's over the entire city of Manhattan and he's destroying the buildings and then you, it reveals it's just like a miniature. Like, I thought that was a cool visual. But then I think like the the most succinct way that I could get at the problems with this story is Peter's monologuing as the story comes to an end. Because he's this is like, I'm just going to read verbatim what he says because I think it, it makes my point for me. He says... Out of nowhere fight between Spidey of 29 and some who even were those guys who cares point is it causes some kind of explosion. This leads to doom himself shutting down all of Manhattan. I have no idea what's going to happen now. And like every one of those sentences is so nebulous and confused. If I'm confused as a reader and Spider-Man is confused as a character it leaves me nowhere to really go with this and maybe it'll read good collected, but like issue to issue, it's like, why am I supposed to come back next time? 
Peter is all of us, Dan. I mean, it's <laughs> which which really shouldn't be in an instance like this. He shouldn't be all of us. He's truly the everyman in regards to responding to the writing of this story arc. That is kind of whoa, whoo, kind of ending to a, a Spider-Man comic as as much as I've ever had one before. I mean, that's that's pretty nuts uh, in a, in like a really kind of meta way so on that note do you want to get to grades or is there anything else you want to hit upon no 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 let's get to grades i mean like you know prefacing my grade it's like i think there's a good story in here somewhere it's just not like giving the readers what we need to care about it necessarily and so like for me like the writing is i wouldn't say it's a fail because like i think like all spencer's stuff the characters are are written in a convincing way like i never have to suspend my out and go this isn't spider-man that i'm reading but like i don't know why i care about the story and so on that regard it doesn't work but then again there's that art so it's a c minus for me it's like you know boy like this art is really kind of making me hang on but that's about it i was gonna say the same i say c minus i mean like it, it it's funny like what you had just mentioned you know made me think about how like the thing about spencer that i've noticed throughout his run so far is that even when things are either kind of not that interesting or, or a little, you know, falling flat for me, like he, he, he has a knack of like kind of pulling things back on track in the span of a one issue that I don't think that Dan Slott or even some other writers who preceded him were always able to do. Like, you know, there were moments with some other writers where like, once the story kind of went off the rails, you were like, all right, how many more issues is left of this thing? Because it ain't getting better. You know what I mean? Whereas like Spencer, ha- Spencer can f- has the ability to kind of pull something pretty good out of this, even though I don't see it right now. But like he does have a knack. So that's why for me, it is a C minus because like there's it's as much as I'm not digging it, like it's not so far gone that I'm like, oh, there's no pulling this thing back. It's often in like Dan Slot stories where like, you know, like the individual puzzle pieces would be interesting, but like he kind of lost our faith that the puzzle would fit together by the end and you it all makes sense. Like I'm thinking about like even Superior Spider-Man or Spider-Verse where like the ending was always kind of a cheat, you know, like it, it just didn't add up or the statement he was trying to make wasn't really as clear as he wanted it to be. Whereas Nick Spencer, I feel like boy, the puzzle pieces are like confusingly assembled, but I know that there is a final thing somewhere in there that will make the statement clear. Even with like, you know, Hunted, like I felt like not really a well-told story, but I knew there was a point he was getting at by the end. Like, I don't know that we needed six issues to explore the lizard's guilt over eating his son, but like it was there and it was, you know, it did all add up at some point. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. That's probably the best best way that I've ever heard someone kind of compare and contrast there. So, well done, Dan. You get an A. <laughs> and you get a posthumous A for your your issue 801 review where you compared Dan Slott's run to jazz. Like, I'll always remember that. So, like, uh, you know, m- metaphors are, are thick over here. Yeah, thank you guys at home for listening in. I, you know... Uh, I had fun talking with you, Mark, about this, and I hope that you guys did too. 
thanks again for joining us for our review roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you all enjoyed our coverage of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 32 to 34. What's coming next, Dan? Well, Mark, I think you know as well as I do that we're still on our hiatus as we plan season four. Mark, we are on the beach here with our sandals and our bathing suits, drinking Mai Tais. We are just enjoying that hiatus life. I never thought a vacation could be so good as this vacation from the seasonal content of Amazing Spider Talk. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's been wonderful. Anything could happen. Just stay tuned and keep an eye on your podcast feed. We kind of tend to shake it up in between the seasons, and you never know what Mark and I could cook up. We're going to be drinking these Mai Tais. But for our Patreon subscribers, the fun continues. Be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week, where we've got our special reviews of the entire Nick Spencer run that's up through issue 39. So if you enjoyed today's show, why not help support our show and get caught up with all of our opinions of the new Spider-Man comics at the same time? Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, B-Book reviews, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork, this time from Barry Kitson, as he depicts the tremendously sad moment that Spider-Man learned of Gwen Stacy's demise. It wouldn't be an episode if I didn't recommend the Untold Talks of Spider-Man podcast, which are coming back on the air. They should have been right back this week after a hiatus of their own. So go check them back out if you're a lapsed listener to the Untold Talks of Spider-Man. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider Slack community for you to join. Just check out this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. Also, a special thank you again to Rick Coast, our very amazing and spectacular editor who puts these episodes together for us. Rick is a big podcaster himself. He's got a bunch of kind of big shows that have been very popular that people should also check out. Rick, what are some of the shows people should be listening to right now? You can find all of my work over at modernaudiodrama.com, where you can listen to shows like The Behemoth, which is about a large lumbering creature that walks across America, followed by 15-year-old Madison. You can also listen to Pixie, The Devil's Daughter, the science fiction show Carbon Dreams, among many others. There's also contact information there. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, Dan. Awesome. Thanks again, Rick. Mark, where can we find you online this week? Well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog, and you can always find my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Dan, where can we find you these days? Yeah, pretty much the same place as always, Mark. I'm over on Twitter at at SupSpiderTalk. I don't have anything really exciting to announce this week, so, you know, just come for my regular content. That sounds awesome, Dan. What else should we come for? Well, Mark, uh, one of the most important things in our show that everybody shows up for is our motto. And when I look up at the sky and I try to clear my head at night and take a deep breath at the end of a hard day of work, I, I come back to the one truism that keeps us all going. Mark, what is that? I, I feel like I should do this in like my Bruce Springsteen voice, the way you're setting this up right now. Like, I mean, this is like a total blue collar dream here. <laughs> Smell that warm New Jersey air. Well, there with great podcast. Oh no, let me do it the real way. With great podcasts, there must also come the all new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.
I was half tempted to write in these like, man, I love these issues. Dan is not putting these words in my mouth. <laughs> All right, here we go. In the USA. I hate you so much. 